Welcome to this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit Show. I am your host, Mark Hacera. For over 24 and a half years, I flew the KC-135, an airplane that I wanted to fly ever since I was five years old, standing on the hood of my Grandpa Andy's car, watching Boeing 707s and Douglas DC-8s landing and taking off at Los Angeles International Airport. It was then that I found my passion, because I said to myself, why work for a living when I can do this? And for over 60 years now, I've been around airplanes. Ask any pilot to define flying and they're probably gonna tell you long periods of boredom interrupted by short intermittent periods of extreme terror. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, weapon system operators, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our show investigates the tactics, techniques, and procedures these aviators created or cultivated during those extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and private flying operations. This exploration gives our listeners practical advice on how the aviation world works and expands our critical thinking skills and expertise in the air and on the ground. Many of these stories you're going to hear here for the very first time. On this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, you're going to meet one of my childhood buddies. We've known each other since we were 10 years old. Mike Reed, call sign Coma. Coma was a weapon system operator in the F-4 Phantom flying missions out of Osan, Korea in Clark Air Base, the Philippines. Coma's gonna share with us how he got his passion for airplanes and I found out something about his family, particularly his father, that I didn't know, particularly after all this time I spent in his house. Geopolitics affected both Mike and I's career when we were coming into the Air Force and while we were stationed in the Pacific. And Coma has some fascinating stories on how geopolitics affected his career in the military. Coma's mom was 13 years old when the Japanese invaded the Philippines during World War II. And she talked to him about some very horrible things that happened during that time period. But she also taught him the art of moving along. Don't let the things that happen to you affect your future. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice. Sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit show. And today, we have Coma in the house. <laughs> How's it going, Sluggos? It's going great. Thank Great. You. What? It's been a while. It's been a while. We have a history, don't we? About five years. Okay. So our background, we have known each other for over 50 years, at least. God, it's hard to believe. Abs 50 years. Because we met in elementary school in Dunwoody, Georgia. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we were both airplane crazy even then. <laughs> it's amazing how this, this uh, has come across. When you look back there, it seems like a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. <laughs> and yet, uh, you follow your dreams, you follow your passions, and the next thing you know, you have a lifetime of stories. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Been, been wild. Been wild. So how did you get started with airplanes? Interesting you should ask. My father was a B-29 pilot in the Pacific Theater of Operations I didn't during know World that. War II. Oh, yeah. He's, he never talked much about it. Um, but uh, he was always proud of the fact that he flew for the Army Air Corps. But he got out of the service, and uh, when he left the service, he got a job with an American lumber company in the Philippines. Met my mother, spent 14 years in the Philippines uh, running sawmills and uh, in the lumber business. And after pumping out five kids, decided it was time to bring them back to the States and, and educate them there. We settled in Atlanta, Georgia. Never talked about, when I was growing up, his uh, time in the Army Air Corps. I just didn't know that much about it. But he still had a passion burning in him for airplanes. And, uh, you know, we did the little things, make little glider things and flying them and all that. And that was fine. But one day when I was 11 years old, my father bought me a Cox J87 Stuka. And it was a control line airplane. You know, gas-powered, <laughs> you wind it up. And I was deathly afraid of this thing because I was afraid when I'd start up that motor, it was going to cut my finger off, which it actually did cut it a couple times because I was not <laughs> smart enough to move my finger out of the way fast enough. Yeah. But anyway, I got to where I got comfortable with it, started flying this thing around, and 
I actually started to like this thing. I thought it was really cool. I started imagining myself flying inside this airplane, even though it was a German airplane. And I got more and more, because of that, I got more and more involved in in stories about World War II. Some Through some conversation, it, my father let me know that he was in World War II, and he flew B-29s, and and I didn't know what a B-29 was, so I started reading more of that, about that. I got into the library at the elementary school, and one thing begot another, and before you know it, I was fascinated by World War II aviation and the fighters and the bombers and everything that went along with it. And I started gravitating towards watching World War II movies back mm -hmm. then. You, you had a couple of them. And then one day when I was in ninth grade, no, it was actually before that, probably in my seventh grade, I saw the movie 12 O'Clock High. <laughs> <laughs> and Great movie. I was absolutely... Um, Gregory Peck. I mean, I just the coffee cup. It was more than it was more than just the uh, the mission mug. Yeah, yeah. It was. But your dad the flew way, bombers. He did. He did, and he wore that uniform. And I was able to look in his old pictures and find pictures of him wearing the pinks. You know, and I was absolutely impressed because in that movie, even though it was black and white. You had guys in the pinks, and they, and unlike movies today, these guys were like heroes. I mean, they acted, yeah. they they acted like men. They talked like men. They were serious about it, and of course, they were doing things that were dangerous. They were doing mm -hmm. things that, you know, you take off and you may not come back, and that became my the hallmark of what solidified my impression of what it was to be a mili military aviator at the time so I knew at that point no kidding that early in my life I knew that's what I wanted to be I wanted to be a military aviator I want to be like them and and that's what got me so my father was the one that got me involved in it well in the meantime during my my um, early years 14 15 16 I got involved in an organization called the Civil Air Patrol which, uh, as you know, is the auxiliary of the United States Air Force. And they had themselves had a play in World War II uh, as a civilian auxiliary looking for uh, uh, German submarines just off the coast, which, of course, were sinking some of our, our shipping. Now, Civil Air Patrol was great, and I got involved with them to the point where I was doing uh, search and rescue missions, but also it was heavy in aviation, as far mm -hmm. as aviation training and history. And I got even more involved in that. It also gave me much more of an orientation of what the modern Air Force was like or yeah. going to be like if I ever wanted to go in. Yeah. And I started to develop a fancy for it. But what it did do is Civil Air Patrol gave me a 15-hour scholarship that paid for my flying lessons. And it gave me 15 hours, and I sold it in about 11. Mm -hmm. And so the rest the remaining time, I used their money or my money to continue that flying until uh, I was eventually ready to go to college. Then I had to stop some of that because going to college means I had to pay for college. My parents were great. They were the finest parents you could ever have. His parents are great. And, and you know, Spent as you know. Spent so much time met, over at his house when I was a kid. We were almost inseparable. Oh, well, I can tell you right now, Dad, the more I did that, the more Dad, surprisingly enough, he didn't bring up his old stories. He just wanted to, you know, I guess, live vicariously through me, as little as that was. But the, the more I learned about him, the more I appreciated. It became synergistic. Yeah. You know, the more I wanted to, 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 to know more. Yeah. And uh, I started, started thinking about going to the Air Force Academy. Okay, so that was a story in itself. Uh, going to the Air Force Academy, Civil Air Patrol was very easy because I learned a lot about things that most kids that time, at that age, do not know. Yeah. Because you really need a mentor to walk you through that. It's a, quite a process. And that process really starts when you're, or 10th grade, rather. Mm -hmm. And then if you're not really into doing the things you need to do to get into the academy, yeah. which, by the way, is about the same for if you want to get a, a military scholarship to ROTC, then you're buying a power curve. And a lot of people don't get that kind of mentorship. Well, Civil Air Patrol provided that. So if, if nothing else, it provided me an insight and a pathway 
and the direction on how I need to do that. Plus, it hooked me up with the air liaison officers that were going to be instrumental in being able to help that. Well, as it turns out, um, even though I was doing very well in high school, I didn't do so well in the SATs because I just took it on a whim, didn't prepare for it, didn't study for it, and I didn't do well at all. And they said, look, we really think that you're the type of guy we wanted in the Air Force Academy because I was captain of the high school wrestling team. I was president of the aeronautical club by that point in in high school. I was working uh, not full-time but part-time in various jobs. And I was at that point in my life, I I was a junior in high school and I was the cadet squadron commander and the Southeast region, Civil Air Patrol outstanding cadet of the year. So all that wrapped up and so into into one package said, really I was the right guy to be going to the Air Force Academy, except for the fact that even though my grades were A B grades, my SAT was terrible. So they said, we'll take we have we, we here's what we want to do. Gotten a nomination. For that point mm-hmm. I'd already gotten a nomination for from um, uh, Senator Nunn's office. Mm-hmm who at the time was the uh, Senate Armed Service Chief yeah, of Senate Sam Armed Service. Senator Sam Nunn. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big guy. And, big time uh, guy. Big name. Big name. And anyway, I uh, was able to do that, but I couldn't get accepted to the Academy because the SAT scores were so low. So what I ended up doing was um, they wanted me to go to the prep school. Well, again, here's where the mentor comes in. Silly me, I just said, I don't want to go there. If I go to the prep school, that means I have to be at the Academy for five years, not four, five years. You know, and I haven't got time for that. And so I decided to just turn that down. Now, in retrospect, that was probably one of the dumbest moves I could have possibly (laughs) made. As a kid at that age, I did not understand geopolitics. Okay, and throughout this entire journey, a lot of lessons were learned the hard way by making mistakes. And that was one of my mistakes. And so as I came through, I turned them down and I started going through a, uh, a regional school called Southern Tech at the time in Marietta, Georgia. And I was gonna major in something I liked because I liked to draw and I was gonna major in architecture. Yeah. He was a okay. terrific artist when we were kids. Yeah, well, I, I, could, have done, I could have done better, but thank you. He was a terrific artist when we were kids. Anyway, so I did about a year and a half of that, and it became apparently obvious to me, this is not what I really want to do in life. I really want to be involved with airplanes. I really want to be involved in building airplanes, flying airplanes, being part of airplanes, and I really want to be in in the U.S. military. And so it just so happened that at Georgia Tech, some guy had dropped out of Georgia Tech, he was on scholarship. Three and a half years of his four-year full scholarship still left, and by that time I was still making, I was making good grades. I was already in the school, mm-hmm. and um, and so I was already taking ROTC courses cross town enrollment. I applied for the Air Force ROTC scholarship and won it. And they selected me, handed it to me, and uh, that was uh, category, category one piece. So if I graduated, then I would go to undergraduate pilot training. So now I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, and of course, this is where geopolitics that you don't know as a kid comes into play. <laughs> All right. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy Carter was the president. And as typical as you, would, you see with the Democratic Party, they're notorious for cutting the budget. They have a different yeah. philosophy. And of course, we were not, we had just finished the Vietnam War. Being in the military wasn't a popular thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so here I am going against the grain yet again. Along with that came a reduction in the demand for military pilots. Now, this is the part of geopolitics that you don't can't factor <laughs> into your life, nor do you even know that's coming down the pipe. Yeah, yeah. And so... Well, what that meant was all of the people that were going to be graduating for the next two or three years, their pilot slot just went away. Gone. If you were not an academy graduate, you did not get a pilot slot because those were the only, that was only money they had was to fill the, fill the pilot Mm -hmm. slots with what 
uh, with the graduating classes. Yeah. And of course, the academies were graduating regular officers as opposed, as opposed to the reserve officers, which came out of ROTC and mm-hmm. officer candidate schools. That meant anybody that was junior or senior lost their slot. And they gave us what the option to either stay in or finish, if we were already on scholarship, finish your scholarship at the expense of the U.S. government, and then you can leave, not go into military, and that would, they'd be happy. Yeah. You get your, well, that was fine, but I wanted to go in the military. Yeah. That was not part of my plan to just get out. <laughs> and I wanted to go yeah. to the military as an aviator. There are no pilot slots. However, we still had the need for military engineers, and we still have the need for military navigators. If you understand the navigators, they're in more than just one airplane, okay? And they do much more than navigate. There are navigators, there are electronic warfare officers, there are weapon systems officers, all come through mm-hmm. the navigator schools and then go out into different operational platforms and different operational tasks. Mm-hmm. My thought was, okay, if I go to nav school, I'm still flying, I can possibly transfer over to pilot training later on at some point in time. Now, this is where my last earlier decision comes home to roost. Had I accepted the academy's prep school, prep school, I would have been in the academy at this point, and I would have had nothing to worry about. And I would have graduated and gone straight to pilot training. As it is, now I'm going in as a navigator. If I, That's assuming, of course, I finish college and assuming mm-hmm. that I, uh, I go into nav school sometime down the road. Mm-hmm. So here I am, they've thrown a wrench in my plans and whatever plans I may have had. And yes, it always helps to have a plan, but better yet, it always helps to have a backup plan. Now, at this point, I'm pretty irritated. In fact, I've really got the beak. In fact, no, 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 it's, I really don't have the beak. I've got the Mozambique at this point. I've really got it bad. I've, I've got a bad attitude. And I'm looking at Georgia Tech's detachment, which was very gracious by oh, yeah. getting giving me this scholarship yeah and i'm angry at them because it's not the scholarship i wanted it's the scholarship that i'm going to have to accept either that or since i'm paying for college there's no way i drop out of college so that is the choices left before me with what we had to work with but i was angry with them so i actually with with air force scholarships with military scholarships in general if you get a scholarship you have the opportunity to go to any school that has an ROTC detachment. At that point, knowing already that I wanted to do something other than architecture, and I really didn't want to go to school in downtown Atlanta with Georgia <laughs> Tech's campus, I decided, you know what? I'm gonna pick up stakes and I'm gonna to go to Auburn. And Auburn University was a beautiful campus that was in the plains of, of Alabama. And it was close enough to home and close enough to the beach and close enough a lot of places close enough to Montgomery and Atlanta and all the places I wanted to be, but I didn't want to stay there because I didn't need the disruption while I was going through college. And so I went to Auburn University sight unseen. I'm going to stay, put my state ground here and I'm going to change my major to aerospace engineering, which is in fact what I did. So I applied at Auburn. They accepted me right away. I ended up going down because remember at this point SAT no longer matters. Yeah, it was your grade point average that mattered at yep. this point. Yep. And I went to Auburn University, started there. My com- my complete class schedule was thrown through the roof. I mean, it was completely tossed out. So I had to work literally every quarter to make up courses that were out of cycle. Yeah. In order to be able to graduate relatively on time, able to to pretty much recover most of it with the exception of uh, two design courses that um, that I needed but were not going to be offered in the time frame necessary for me to graduate on the original plan that we had set. The problem with that was, of course, that the funding for my scholarship ended on the original plan. So now I had another dilemma as I'm going into my senior year. Mm-hmm. How do I clip those two design courses, <laughs> which really tied all of the aerospace engineer, yeah. engineering curriculum together, be able to graduate on time? So I walked into the dean of aerospace engineering's office at the time, and I decided, 
I got a proposition. How about if I do a senior project, use that senior project with a thesis, validating the thesis, how about if I use that as, as evidence to collect the course? Well, to my surprise, Auburn was a pretty was pretty open to a lot of opportunities. And you know what? Okay, on the proviso that you have three tenured professors, Sheep heard your project and approved your thesis and have the senior design professor, a guy named Dr. John Burkhalter, who was one of the stalwarts of the aerospace engineering department at the time, he had to grade it, and whatever grade you get is the two grades you're going to have. And so I said, fair enough. So there started another adventure of actually going in, designing, building, and testing this design, and proving my thesis was, in fact, correct. There was another proviso that also came in, and that is if it was successful, then I had to d deliver or present my findings to the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA, in Southeast Regional Competition against other engineering schools at the upcoming conference, which was going to be in March in uh, 1980. So I set about basically going to Auburn Woodshop, which no longer exists now, but, and since I didn't have the budget authority to do anything, I just grabbed hardwood in the in trash bins laminated together, hand-carved out a design that I had been looking at, current magazines at the time, about research aircraft that were exploring transonic flight maneuverability as well as uh, aeroelastic tailoring. And I stumbled on one from Rockwell International, uh, referred to as highly maneuverable advanced technology, and it was a cool design. And I said, I'm going to design something like that. That and was Hymat. That was Hymat. That was Hymat. And that was the big thing back then. Yeah. Because back there in the late 70s, everybody wanted to have canards on their design. That <laughs> was yeah. a big thing. And many yeah. co uh, companies and countries actually ended up followed that, that philosophy of design. But anyway, so I designed a uh, model and built the model based on this trash wood that I had found <laughs> and had to size it to fit the wind tunnel test section. And I had some great help from a guy named... Mr. Holbrook, who was our senior uh, technician at the School of Engineering to help me mount it on the sting mount so it didn't trash the tunnel. And we tested it. And uh, right off the bat, the thing was unstable for flight and longitudinal axis because they had this thing called the tail volume ratio, which is basically the ratio of, of your uh, tail empennage against your main wing and your main airfoil, to, to put it simply. And mine was too small. And so I had to adjust it. So I doubled the size of that, ended up with it back on, on the sting mount, and we tested it again. And sure enough, it was now stable. It was for at least normal flight. Then we had to go through the whole process of going through different configurations mm -hmm. to test this model to validate or disvalidate the, the whole premise. My whole premise was if you put a canard in, in front and you don't put it, properly, you could end up with bad airflow off the canard and completely mess up your aerodynamics of your airplane. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you did it properly, you could it would actually enhance your maneuverability, especially in high angle, low speed flight. So I set off to, to, to do this. After about three and a half months worth of testing and 60 test runs later, I came up with enough data that actually showed exactly what my thesis had, had stated. One in particular, one run in particular was such that, yes, we proved that there was a vortex sheet that came off the canards that actually impinged on the main wing in such a way that at high angles of attack, airflow did not experience separation, which means the even though the canard was stalling, the main wing was actually still flying, mm -hmm. and it actually increased lift on the main wing, which offset each other. So if you had enough thrust to hold the air, the the airplane the up. airplane up you could literally tailwalk that airplane well that was unusual for an undergraduate to discover something <laughs> oh, like this yeah. that was uh something a whole lot different 
you were in the graduate level stuff there. Well, I didn't care. I didn't know better. I was just doing what I thought yeah. was would work. Yeah. Anyway. And now here it is 40 years later, and they've come completely back around. Moved from there. So everything worked out there, and I went to the Air Force. The Air Force was another thing altogether. Going into the Air Force was, to say the least, an adventure. So I went to uh, nav school, and there were 50 people in our graduating class for a flight school. Right away, uh, two or three dropped out. Because, as you know, <clears throat> military flight school is not something is that's not for easy. the faint of heart. It is not easy. <clears throat> You're there, and especially during a time when they don't need aviators yeah. because of the budget. You drop out, or if you're not doing very well, they don't keep you on very long. They just say, adios, amigos. And so, <clears throat> as a general rule, the top 10% of the class would get their first choice mm -hmm. if they could swing it. So, which means if you have a class of 50, that means the top five get their first choice. Top five guys, yeah. That's it. That's, and that's it. You are literally working your butt off for 12 months, 13 months, as long as flight school. Mm -hmm. It's one of the longest training, military training programs. Yeah. Undergraduate pilot training and undergraduate navigator training mm -hmm. that there is in the military. If you are not in the top five, then you get whatever comes down for a pick. And for me, I wanted fighters. I really wanted fighters because I thought that's where the action was going to be and I thought that was cool and I was really shooting for either going to be an F-4 Phantom or an F-111, which is the only two fighters at the time that really had a navigator in the back, mm -hmm. commonly referred to as a weapon systems officer or WIZO for short. And so I worked probably as hard as I've ever worked. Even though I enjoyed the flying, you were spending a lot of time in mission prep and training academics prep because there's three parts of the training program. There's obviously academic testing that you had yeah. to excel in but there was also simulator testing that you had to excel in and then of course you had to excel in flight every day there was some instructor looking over your shoulder constantly yeah. grading you on everything on everything i mean every time you sneeze they graded i yeah i felt you know but that's what it took well i was able to be after it was all over i ended up in one of the top five in my class i wasn't number one but i wasn't number 50 either or however many we had left in my class and that we were going to be graduating in 80 1981 as we got into there they, they, just just by lucky by by absolute luck our class got five drops when the, the selection process came down we got five drops of f4 phantoms the rest of it was a scattering of C-130s, KC-135 tankers, B and a B whole lot of B-52s. Imagine probably, that. Pro because a B-52 has three navs on it yeah. at the time. Yeah. It had an RN, a BN, and an EWO. Yep. You're going to get sacumcised. That's a fact. Epic as that job is, you're sitting in an airplane with no windows. Okay. For a long time. They had windows for the pilots, but no windows for the navigators. Yeah. Okay, They were... They were having long missions, and that's that's, and of course, most of the SAC bases at the time were up north. Yep. It's another thing I didn't really want. Northern to do. tier. So I desperately wanted to get into the fighter community, and I was able to to luckily enough pull an F four, then went through lead in fighter training at Holloman Air Force Base, which just got you that next step to do a high speed performance aircraft. Even though you weren't doing a whole lot with a in the fighter world, you were just orienting yourself towards the fighter world, and then went through a six-month uh, course called Replacement Training Unit called RTU at Luke Air Force Base to, to teach you how to actually go to war in a weapon system of choice, which mm -hmm. was, for me, F4. the F-4 Phantom. Yep. And that was that's, that's when it started to become fun. And that's when it was mm -hmm. really interesting because I didn't really, you know, the old adage comes into play. If you like what you're doing, then you'll never work a day in your life. Yep. Well, that's pretty much the way it, it worked out for me because now I'm in my element I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I may not be flying the airplane, but we're certainly doing a lot in that in the, in the back of a Phantom that made it pretty fun. When you're hunting down other airplanes or dropping bombs on targets on the ground, you're running the mission. It's well, it's yeah. actually we're doing a lot of we're we're doing a lot of things that are so unique. Yeah, stuff that uh, you go to back to the 
the bar and the Oak, Oak Club that night, and you think, I can't believe they're paying me to do this stuff. <laughs> Which was the big joke. Yeah. After six months of that, um, the drop comes down. Of course, we fill out our dream sheets. So where do we? Where would you like to be assigned if we can swing it? And I will give personnel office a, a little a nod here that they did try to to fill those when they could. Yep. Well, I was single at the time, and I wanted to be the guy that hunts in the air. I didn't want to be the guy that was doing all the bombing. There were only two F-4 Phantom bases at that time because they were winding down F-4 Phantoms at that mm -hmm. time in favor of the new F-15 and F-16s that were coming online yeah, as yeah. an operational frontline fighter. Yeah. And so uh, there was only two bases that actually did air-to-air, -air, and they were Keflavik Air Base mm -hmm. and Osan Air Base, both mm -hmm. during the Cold War at different ends of the spectrum. One involved with the European theater operations, that being mm -hmm. Keflavik, and they managed, they, they would of course chase and monitor the bear traffic, mm -hmm. the, the Russian bomber traffic coming from the North Sea into Europe and down into the Atlantic. And then of course, there was the other one, and that was of course, North and South Korea, with the DMZ as the demarcation line between the communist North and of course the capitalist South. 15 minutes as the crow flies, from the DMZ was Osan Air Base. Smack dab in the middle of it was the 36th Fighter Squadron flying F-4Es, and that's what I put down in my dream sheet, number one. The second one, Keflavik. Yeah. Well, I was uh, pinpointing where I want to be. Now, a lot of people looked at me like, what kind of idiot are you? <laughs> Those are both remote tours. You can't have fun there. You can't do anything over there. I said, that's where I want to be. They gave me Osan Air Base, didn't take long before I was flying over there on a contracted aircraft, landing at Osan, and it was like going from night to day. I mean, you went from the relative leisure and comfort of the United States, where you could go down the street, grab a beer uh, in the middle of the night, and yeah. a sandwich, and yeah. streets yeah. were relatively safe and yeah. clean. And as we're approaching the base at Osan, I'm noticing that there's Constantina wire everywhere. The runaway is camouflaged. Yep. <laughs> All the buildings were camouflaged. Yep. There were Hawk batteries positioned at strategic points around the base. It was a war zone. And this was in 1982. By this time, America's starting to get over Vietnam. They're going back to the normal daily operations. And here I am smack dab in what looks like a war zone. The squadron was very uh, welcoming, but that was now a, I was still a second lieutenant. And at the time, because I didn't have any casual time between my normal upgrade training, I ended up becoming the youngest, for about three months, the youngest combat flight officer in PACAF as a second lieutenant. And of course, what were we doing? We were basically flying continuation training missions, other missions that were mm -hmm. basically patrolling the DMZ. Yeah. Now that in itself was... An interesting topic because now you are 24 years old and your job is to take off in the morning we used to jokingly call it dawn patrol and fly out to the dmz with uh, your flight be stationed in a cat point at one of two or three places and you'd go out there and make uh well i wouldn't call it circular patterns because we didn't do our our caps in circles like you would normally expect yeah. to see we did it in a different pattern in such a way that our radars were always pointing north yeah so we could check if anything's coming back down south, we would know what it was. You would see that they would mimic our positions. Where we would go up, they would be there too. And there's a demarcation area, a lot of people don't know this, there's a demarcation area in the DMZ, five miles north and five miles south, yep. um, called Restricted Area P518. And it is actually a buffer zone between the 38th <laughs> parallel, north and yep. south. They're supposed to stay five miles north of the DMZ, and we're supposed to stay five miles okay. south of the DMZ. And, and everybody's fine. And everybody's happy. <laughs> <laughs> Up to a point. Now, the yeah. helicopters didn't get in, but they had restricted yeah. status. Yeah. Certainly not the fighters and certainly not the bombers. Yeah. Five miles in one side, five miles on the other side. That's great. Except for I have a radar missile that goes out to 25 miles. <laughs> and so there's, your cap is five miles south and their cap's five miles north. And there's 10 miles between you and them. And that doesn't mean a whole lot because we have them on radar. Yeah. And I'm sure they're looking at us. 
but at that time their their uh, MiG 21s mm-hmm. had a range only radar. It wasn't a search radar. We had the ability to shoot radar missiles at them, and they didn't have the capability to shoot that far <laughs> at us. So at any one time, it should something happen. Of course, then then we had the things ability could get to, intriguing. We could reach out and touch somebody. There's yeah. no question about it. Yeah. But the irony of it was, you could go look across there ten miles. Although you knew they're there, you could couldn't really discern the aircraft they had, even though you have an idea what it was just by its radar signature. But they'd be little dots out there, off on the horizon, yeah. only ten miles away from you, going back and forth just like you were. And that was always a surreal thought to me at the time. That guys, this could get ugly very fast <laughs> yeah. in a real short time. Yeah. yeah. With a missile that moves at Mach three, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. So it's covering that distance, twenty-five miles. Lickety split, pretty quick, pretty quick. Lickety now, split. Now it also got interesting. While the year I was there, we also did have a time, and it's happened. It happened twice that I that, that I know of. Once, roughly about the time I was there, and another time before that, where we had a Mig come south trying to escape Ooh. the north. Essentially. They'd already had one. We were there, and one started coming south. And, of course... A defector. A defector. And uh, you could tell, you could see one on radar, because because you'd see the one target. And it's not like it's an invasion. It's mm-hmm. one target coming south. 20, 25 miles behind it is another one trying to run it down. Trying to catch up. Immediately, everybody gets their nose on it, because our, our ground control intercept radar uh, locations now yeah. immediately peak us to... And, of course, you start thinking, oh, I'm going to go get this guy. Well, not so fast, GI. <laughs> that is an international incident, and you're in South Korea, and they're going to let the South Koreans handle yeah. that. And so, they pulled us off. And that's where that politics comes back in. Again. Absolutely, that's where that politics comes back in, the, man. The lessons learned. The lessons learned of poli- <laughs> geopolitics, man. Mm-hmm. You're learning it up front and personal as a 25-year-old or 24-year-old. Permeating everything you do. <laughs> Damn those politicians. <laughs> anyway, so they intercepted it, bring it back. A couple of months later, we were able to sit in that airplane and take a look at it and, and exploit the airplane a little bit to get a feel for what our enemy was flying, You know, at least in part. It was that sort of thing that kind of kept it alive all the time. Yeah. I mean, sure, you're in a foreign country. However, the Koreans treated us extremely well. They did not, especially oh, the elders, yeah. they did not forget oh, yeah. what we did for what them during the, the Korean 50s. War. They were they were very, very kind to us, and I enjoyed being with them. Vicious about being being not being communists. And, you know, you appreciated that. But it was a country that was not as advanced, let's say, as, let's say, as what you came from. And you had to get used to certain things. You know, the food was different. Culture was different. You had to be very cognizant of not offending them. Yeah. Uh, there's certain things you did in the Orient or don't do in the Orient uh, because it would be offensive that we take for granted here. And so things of that nature, you learned you know, how to not just be a tourist in another country, yeah. but to actually live in another yeah. country. And that was another, yeah. that was a significant lesson learned that you take with you as you go through the rest of your life. After Korea, that was a one-year remote tour. I'm coming up on the end of my tour, and I can either go back stateside or I can stay in... PACAF, the Western Pacific, yeah. and uh, I decided, no, you know what, I am going to go back to the Philippines and get, st- and so I re- applied to state- be stationed at Clark mm-hmm. Air Base. Of course, it's much easier for them to just keep somebody in yeah. command. Yeah. That was an easy selection. I got yeah. moved down to... Uh, and again, that's where your mom's from. That's where I was born, actually, in the Philippines, and my, of course, right. my mother. That's right. And my mother was, was, was from was Manila, which is another story because my mother was a 13-year-old young girl in Manila when the Japanese invaded. Not a good age and not a good time. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. So she saw a lot of the horrors that we only see in books. To her credit, she never let that take her spirits down. I never once heard your mom talk about that. She didn't. You know that? She didn't. And that's and all another... the time that I spent at your house, I never once heard your mom... This is the first time I'm hearing that. I well, didn't this know is that. this is something I learned. Thirteen-year-old girl and the Japanese in the Philippines—that's not a good combination. No, no, no. And her family, she lost her brother from the bombings of Manila, uh, in the bombings of Manila at the time. So really, she didn't. You would have, you know, a lot of people try to carry that cross. Mm-hmm. And one thing oh, for the rest of their life. And one thing that about my parents, and I think it was fundamentally true of the greatest generation, as we like to call them was they learned the art of moving along, not to let 
bad times get them down. And again, I didn't realize that back then, but I was to learn this over time as I kept looking back and relating to my my story is that that generation, unlike it seems like ours or the ones that come after ours, seem to dwell on the negative. And it doesn't help. It doesn't gain you anything. Yet they were able to move on and and do great things. They didn't pass that negativity to our family. They just raised a family of five kids and... We were happy, and only as I got older and learned more about history mm-hmm. and could relate it to my time yeah. in that theater of operations did yeah. it start dawning on me just how special they were. And I actually sat them down, and I asked them, I said, Mom, I realized you, were, you went through a lot of this. Um, would you be willing to talk about it? And she just opened up and said, yeah, no problem. They had learned how to put it behind them. And she walked me through in bloody detail everything she experienced, and I was in awe. You know, yet Boy. she was the kindest person you'd ever want to meet. She really was, and it she, was fun seeing your mom at the front door because she always, always was hugging me. Oh yeah, and she was that way. I look at that. I look at my childhood or people's childhood now, and I think, what are we complaining about? Yeah, these people went through the depression, and then they had to go through that. I was uh, it, what it made me do. It was appreciate my parents even more. Yeah. Yeah. And it also become a little bit more introspective about my life and what's important and what's worth arguing over and what's not. Yeah. And so there was a there was there was a big growing yeah. moment for me being you know, in the military in that theater of operations and being able to relate that back to to my parents' yeah. lifestyle. And I'm happy I was able to do that. Yeah. But the Philippines was was three three and a half four years worth of of assignment. In the Philippines, Clark Air Base. Oh, it, at that time, it was the largest military installation outside of, I think, Eglin Air Force Base. Yeah. yeah certainly the largest massive, uh, outside of, of the base. continental United States. Oh, my. Massive base. Lots of responsibilities there. By that time, I think you were flying tankers. Yeah. I never knew what had ever happened to you. Yeah. And I, I, had I known you were up at Kadena, I would have found a way to get over there. But uh, we spent a lot of time going back and forth to Korea because that was obviously the hotbed yeah. uh, during the Cold War, during the years I was in mm-hmm. the Cold War. Surprisingly enough, it always amazed me how much play Yasser Arafat and the Middle East got during, in the news media during that time. Yet we were going back and forth in Korea and in some cases they were shooting at each other. It never hit the news. Never hit the news and you wonder, I cannot believe we've got a shooting war going on down know. here. I know. And they're talking about Yasser Arafat, you know, yeah. and trying to make yeah. peace. Okay, fine. They're doing, they're, they've got problems over there too, but we're not militarily involved in that. In fact, there was one time when I was flying at Osan and we were doing night intercepts and we were flying over the Yellow Sea just doing night intercepts. And uh, the lead ship came across crackled across the radio and said knock it off which of course you know the 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 call the call knock it off means stop what you're doing yeah you know safe arm and let's re-resort everything we didn't understand what that meant you know we couldn't understand why we were just about to start an intercept Mm -hmm. with them as the practice target yeah and uh all of a sudden he calls knock it off he said roger one knock it off two knock it off our typical challenge and response and uh, the next thing we hear is rejoin on me so i could turn my no, my nose of my airplane north get them on contact yep. we intercept we do a we do a rendezvous in the night and we're now in fingertip formation in a big circling flying pattern and we're and we're still in in the dark literally mm-hmm. and figuratively thinking to ourselves what is going on is he got an in-flight emergency an ife or what we key the mic and said um okay what's up and the response was, look down. Well, these are very unusual radio calls, okay? <laughs> yeah. We're making a big circling pattern in the dark about 15,000 feet mean sea level. I don't know if I want to look down. <laughs> <laughs> so we looked down, and I'm going, I don't see anything. It's just black down here. It's an ocean, so it's all black. The sky is all black. So we're, we're just flying around going, I don't see anything. He says, the next thing you know, he calls, calls back and says, no, look way down. So now we're looking way down below the aircraft in a bank, and there's two boats, and they're shooting at each other. 
Oh, jeez. And it was, immediately occurs to us that you got a South Korean and a North Korean patrol boat. And they are hammering away at each other. You could tell which one was the North Korean because they were shooting 37 millimeters. And you could tell they were 37 millimeters because they were coming out in orange balls of three at a time. Just doo doo doo. And then you would see them impact, boom, boom, boom. Next thing you'd see a response, it would be just a white straight light, which, of course, <laughs> as you probably well know, was basically a 20, mil- a 20 millimeter Vulcan minigun yeah. that they had on the boat. Yeah. And they used to see these white lightning straight lines go straight back and forth. Yeah, of 100 bullets. And they went back and forth like this for about 15 to 20 seconds. And finally, we're, we're watching this thing going, holy cow, this is a gun battle. We are flying right around with, with front row seats. And it's yeah. a gun battle in the middle of the Yellow Sea. Yeah. And I guess both of these boats had run into each other and decided to start uh, dancing. My nose gunner keys the mic and says, hey, let's go down there and take a closer look. <laughs> now, the flight lead was a lieutenant colonel. I can't forget his name. Or I forget his name, rather. And he had been in Vietnam. He was an old Vietnam guy. Yeah. And he just flat out keyed the mic and said, hell no, we're staying right here. <laughs> <laughs> so last thing we need is them start shooting, shooting at us. us. Yeah. Absolutely. See, boom, boom, boom. Absolutely. Boom, boom, boom. Coming Absolutely. up at us. <laughs> so anyway, we came around, and soon enough, next thing you know, we saw four four streaks of white light going from the South Korean patrol boat and impacting the North Korean patrol boat, and then secondaries immediately happened. And just boom, boom, boom. And, of course, I'm wearing an oxygen mask, but my jaw was dropping. <laughs> know, it must have I been know. down at my knees watching this. And here I am watching this show going, holy cow. So, of course, we wrap it up because now there's nothing going on. It's all black down there, and all we could see is one boat with a searchlight. So we're starting to run on fl- low on fuel. We go back yeah. home. And it's over with that fast, isn't it? Very quickly. Very quickly. It's over with that fast. And what's interesting is there's no epic music in the background. <laughs> yeah. There's no screaming and hollering. It's just dead quiet as we're watching this yeah. light show go on down below. Yeah. Puts this whole thing in perspective. You know, people are dying down there. And we're just we're just up here sitting quietly, going around. All you're hearing is the the whine of the electronics and the drone of the motors, and it's time to go home. And so we go back, and by practice, we have to re- file the report. We file the report we see, which demands a 24-hour uh, mm-hmm. response from the headquarters, TAC Air Warfare Center, that are at Osam. The next day, we're back in the squadron, and we inquire what happened out of our report. What was the response? And the response to us was, oh, the Rock Ave said that was just a Korean exercise. <laughs> I said, sure, you always blow each other up during the Korean, in your practice yeah. exercise. We always go around sinking North Korean boats. <laughs> and that was the way it was. I mean, that was, that was typical of what you would see in the tour. And so, of course, back in the Philippines... It wasn't quite as exciting because you're more rear echelon there, but you did have your moments. Uh, there was a time when we were stationed in the Philippines, I was with the 3rd Fighter Squadron, and we were an air-to-ground squadron, which meant that uh, battlefield air interdiction, which is like bombing bridges mm-hmm. and fixed targets, we did close air support, We did, uh, but we also did infrared laser-guided bomb weapons delivery, among other things. And one day, we got a frag order that basically said the Novorossic fleet from, from Vladivostok was going to be sailing south. And oh, man. And the Navy was going to follow them up to a point, and then we were going to pick them up. Well, why, why us? It was going to be a night mission. Why us? Because they were coming down through the north of the Philippines. We were going to pick them up. Actually, we are going to hit a tanker and then pick them up, take as much IR video of the weapon systems, the antennas, the aircraft on board, oh, yeah. the number of ships that they that were following mm-hmm. the fleet, basically gather intelligence, video intelligence using infrared uh, paved tack pods. And so we launched, uh, I believe, two flights of four. What, so what time at night is this? Oh, this is about midnight, if I remember <laughs> oh, correctly. Video tapes on the capability on the F-4, and these were 
you know, industrialized videotapes. They were large cassette tapes. Looked yeah. like an, looked like a, the old the old VHS tapes on steroids. <laughs> and we'd plug these things in. They would see. They would record what we see through my radar scope. Yeah. Which now was turned into an IR video scope, with uh, with the help of digital technology, which was upgraded into mm-hmm. the F4s that were at Clark Air yeah. Base. Which this were newer the, F4s than the ones we had at Osan. The DMAS jets. These were these were what we call the RN101 modded uh, F4 yeah. F4 aircraft. Yeah, and, and you've got pave tack on these things. We had pave tack, which was pave tack, which is about five thousand pounds, forty five units pave drag. Of, yeah, forty five <laughs> units worth of non genisable drag. <laughs> so if we ever got caught by another fighter. Guess what? You know we're grapes. We're just moving targets out there because we didn't, we couldn't maneuver with that much of weight on the aircraft. Yeah, but you could take a lot of video with that. Well, we could, and we and we did. Uh, between the flights, the the Wizos took a whole lot of video of the Novorossiysk fleet. And at one point, you're pretty, you're pretty engrossed in trying to get all of the video and the sections of the boat that the Intel guys wanted you to vid, to film. Yeah. And you're so you're pretty much buried into the scope, while the pilot is doing the best he can to fly as smooth as possible, so you can yeah. get a decent platform. And then when you get run out of fuel, then yeah. the next guys come up in, yeah. and they do the same thing, and they're following them down because the Navy, Navy had now released them, and they were they were in our area. Yeah. We were flying over the top of them. Well, I'm taking video, and I'm watching these Yak 28s come off the deck of the Novorossiysk. Oh, they're little yeah. hot spots, and I thought it was kind of cool. We'd yeah. zoom in and they'd fly up and go off out of my field of view, and I'm and still they're flying at night. Oh, they're flying at night. They are flying at night. They're flying late at night. Wow. And so, because they don't like us flying over their ship, <laughs> <laughs> taking <laughs> pictures, as they say, they ain't happy. <laughs> and so it looks like bees coming out of a hornet's nest, you know. Mm-hmm. But there weren't a lot of them. There was only about two, maybe three, that came yeah. off. We we were filling them in the boat. And about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes later, my uh, nose gunner, the pilot, aircraft commander, we called him, says, hey, Coma, um, look to your right. And I said, I'm a little busy right now. <laughs> he says, no, no, really, look to your right. So I swing the pod from looking down to looking at my you know, right the wing, right my right three o'clock. And there, right next to us, is a Yak twenty eight. Oh. And hello, uh, boys. Yeah, and they, they ain't happy. I mean, that you could tell even even it was somewhat blurry yeah. because the IR video back then was nowhere close to the yeah, quality yeah, yeah. that it is right now. But he's trying to wave us off, saying, "Go away, you know, get away from us." And he's trying to get close to us to get us to move. And of course, we're not moving. Now, I thought for a moment, maybe if I just turn on the laser and laze him a little bit. You know, <laughs> but no, I said that would be an international incident. They wouldn't like that, and yeah. I'd probably get myself in trouble when I got back to Clark. So are you carrying any missiles or anything no, like that? No, no. You're just strictly ca- just taking pictures, no, and you're we are, unarmed. We're just, nothing in the gun, we got two TP tanks, rounds. we got two 370 bags on the wings, and we've got paved drag on the center line. <laughs> and we're taking videos. And so he eventually flies in front of me, and I just followed him all the way through, which is the video you saw. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw And that. he's trying to fly close enough at night yeah, to yeah. scare us off, to get us scared yeah. to go away. Eventually, we just run out of gas, and it's time to go back. Yeah. We let the other teams find him, and they did some filming, and they, yeah. they archived that. And, of course, we took that uh-huh. video, and we handed it to intelligence as soon as we landed. Yeah. And but that you, was were taking him on, you were taking him on Pave Tack and on the Tizio, yeah, basically the... Tell the, them what the Tizio the is. Tell people jets, what the Tizio is. The, a, tiz, a Tizio is a sensor. It's like a giant camera mm-hmm. that's mounted on the left wing of an F4E with an ARN 101 mod. What it was it's, It was a tactical identification system that allowed you, once you got a radar lock, to be able to flip over to this closed-circuit television yeah. lens and identify in. it Zoom in. Way in advance. It really was, it was good out to about 10 miles to be able to yeah. see, but it wobbled around a lot. And yeah. you had to really be, you know, some were better than others. Yeah, yeah. But it allowed you to get an ID so you didn't shoot a friendly as yeah. opposed to shoot yeah. an enemy. Yeah. Okay, well. And you got that guy on Tiz. Yes, you? basically what I did is as soon as, as soon as he, he came out there, it was no longer 
I, I, I flipped the pot on the paved tack pot on standby and, and locked him up on radar and then flipped it on Tizio and was able to get this guy, you know, flying right in front of us. Oh, yeah, he was in a turn. And it was just a lucky. Nice turn. Be, oh, yeah, he was. He was, only about a, he was only about a half mile out, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so he came right across the nose, and I got a pretty decent picture of that. And that was all on the video we took. So At night. At night. It wasn't much of a picture when you look at it by modern standards. Yeah. For a young guy, that's pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> it was better than... I'm doing fun stuff here. It was better than playing video games back home, because all I had was Pong at the time, yeah. I believe. Yeah. But uh, that was probably one of the more exciting things that happened. Uh, but there were a couple of scares. Every now and then, something would happen yeah. in uh, in Korea, and immediately we'd... Uh, the order to go get your bug out bags ready, and uh, which we go. always kept prepared, and off we go. Yeah. You know, we would launch. Sometimes we couldn't tell anybody where we were going, and for yeah. those who were married, that was kind of disconcerting. Mm -hmm. But you almost always knew it was probably going to be Korea, because that's where the hotbed was yeah. all the time. That that's what was in the news. Yep. Um, I mean, that was Kim Sing, uh, Kim Il Sung's uh, son, Kim Jong Il. Yeah. Essentially, that was the uh, that was the game of the day, and so essentially, that was it. After that, my final assignment after ten years in the service was as a flight instructor back in California. Uh, before deciding, gosh, yeah, they're going to be uh, they're going to be cutting the budget yet again. Yeah. And by now, now I was lucky because I was there during most of that. I was there during the Reagan years, and they were upgrading. Oh yeah, they were upgrading all of the. Yeah. <clears throat> All of the yeah. systems that we were getting, we had we had the funding we needed to be able yeah. to properly staff and yeah. execute the missions that they were demanded of us. And Reagan was a, you know, Reagan did several things that were fundamental to us because it freed us up. It, a lot of people don't realize during the Carter years, we were not allowed to shoot anybody unless they, we were fired upon first. That was this policy. Well, that just means somebody's going to die on your side before you even get a chance to do something. Yeah. Reagan changed all that. Yeah. And two years into his term in office, he literally changed the ROE, the rules of engagement, such that uh, if we thought it was a threat, then we could go master arm on, and that we could we could go aggressive if we felt it was necessary. And do to, what you need to do to uh, save our lives, and uh, that immediately made a big difference in the attitude in the squadron. And it was huge because now we were more relaxed. We felt like we could cut ourselves loose. And there's geopolitics again. Again. Another geopolitics in, lesson. Creeping into the picture. And that was a, a recurring lesson that I was going to have to not only grow with, but try to understand as I got older. Yeah. Uh, even after I left the military, now you start realizing that there's a lot involved in the decision-making yeah. of these operations around the world and uh, had to deal with and continues to deal with to this day that has an impact as to whether they're going to uh, to have a successful mission and, of course, subsequently, potentially even uh, cost them their lives. Yeah. Isn't that, it amazing that Sun Tzu had this right 2,500 years ago? His very first chapter, very first paragraph, he talks about what? Geopolitics. You might not like politics, but politics is going to be a part of your life. Absolutely, absolutely. Particularly and, in the military. And young men and women don't—they don't grow up with this. They don't teach this in yeah. high school. They certainly don't teach yeah. this in college, unless you're a political science major. You learn it uh, the hard way, you know, mm -hmm. through hard knocks or through observation as you go through the first few years of your your life in the military. Yeah. Because you are in the military, sooner or later, going to get involved into something that has geopolitical uh, implications. Yep. And that's what I learned. Leaving the military after 10 years. What really, I was plan my, my plan was to stay in the military for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Because I enjoyed it. I, yeah. I enjoyed the excitement and I enjoyed yeah. working with the equipment. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed being involved with, some, with things that were bigger than me. Yeah. I, I enjoyed being involved in activity that was what you saw in the news. Yeah. Um, and it was real. And of course, when you were in a frontline units like the ones that were in Yusefi or PACAF, mm -hmm. you, for instance, or the, the 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 fleets, which were all 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 deployed frontline, their sense of urgency with those units is fundamentally different than what you see in the states. In the states, you get a lot of people that are doing strategy, they're doing a lot of academics, they're doing a lot of training, but they're not inherently involved 
face to face. They may deploy to areas where yeah. all that in, is involved, but it's the squadron tempo is a lot different. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, and the mindset was too absolutely big time. Absolutely, um, big time. They're not as intense. They're certainly not as the sense of urgency is not there. Yeah, um, like it is when you're at a place like Osan or Masawa or Kadena yeah. or Clark yeah. or Ramstein, yeah. Keflavik. You can just go down a list of frontline yeah. bases yeah. where you have guys who are going to be seeing the enemy, if you will, yeah. on any in any given day. Yeah, either on radar or with the retina. Absolutely. Retina to retina or on the radar, you're going to see the bad guys. Absolutely. You, and that brings a perspective in, into your life yeah. that that you carry with you too. And that is that, look, there's things out there that's serious. Yeah. Just because I'm enjoying life back here in the States, yeah. there's a lot going on out there that people don't recognize yeah. and commanding our attention yeah. or changing our geopolitics, our decision-making. Yeah. And that becomes even doubly true now that we're talking about a new administration that is involved in changing the culture and the economics mm -hmm. of, of, of our domestic lives, but also being observed intently by our enemies, yeah. that being China, yeah. Russia, yeah. the Middle East, Iran, yeah. just, just to name a couple. Yeah. And they're all looking for us to fail. And they're all looking for a niche in our armor that they can exploit. And I know that because having lived through the Cold War, it may be a different players, different technology, mm -hmm. but it's the same enemy. Yeah, and it's the uh, same ideology. Absolutely, and they're not going to give in, nor are they practicing the Judeo-Christian philosophy of mm -hmm. tolerance and compassion. Yeah. They will tell you they are. They will agree with whatever you agree, but when lying is not an issue for you, yeah, then they'll tell you anything. When the ends justifies the means. Absolutely, they are about as Machiavellian as it gets. Yeah. That is something that became very apparent to me since when I was over there, just like so many of us, we weren't there as tourists. We were there living it daily. Yeah. We could see it. We, could, we, could, we, 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 we spoke with the locals on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and we weren't speaking about whether the pina coladas were tasting good or not. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about their fears, our fears, yeah. because yeah. They, have, they have families on the front lines just like we do. Yeah. It is real. And that's something that I take with me my entire life. As I got out of the military, mm -hmm. you know, I got out because George Bush at that time, George Bush Sr., yeah. had already said that he was going to have to cut the, in order to balance the budget, cut mm -hmm. cut the budget to post-World War II levels, which essentially was nothing. And, of course, yeah. we saw that was nothing when we got back into Korea and our entire military force had been depleted. And we had to mm -hmm. ramp right back up again. For Desert Storm. Here we go. <laughs> so I decided, well, it's time for me to get out. Because nothing's going to happen, and if they cut that kind of budget, then the, the, the type of positions in the military that I was looking for were going to be non-existent yeah. or less. Yeah. And I was carrying with me, you know, a, a pretty good degree, and I figured I could probably find a pretty good job on yeah. the outside. Yeah. And so I, I I left. Well, I'll be damned if three days later, Saddam Hussein didn't attack Kuwait, and immediately I called the personnel center MPC and. Yeah, to see if I could just tear up my my yeah. resignation yeah. orders. Because the third deployed. Immediately. They were one of the first They went to Enserlik Air Base to fight in the Northern they War. They did. In fact, they actually engaged for the first couple of weeks. They actually engaged. And then, because of the age of the aircraft, just uh, were sent home. Yeah. Um, but it didn't take long because, as you know, it only took 100 hours yeah. of air and ground war to yeah. uh, remove Saddam Hussein. Yeah. From I still keep in touch with Craig Lightfoot. Really? Yeah. I'll be darned. Yeah, Craig Lightfoot. He was your squadron commander or, or DO or something like that at the time, I think. Yep. And a uh, great guy. Great guy. Oh, yeah. He's, he's in Alabama teaching at uh, Junior ROTC now. I did not know that. I keep in touch with him. Yeah. You happen to know what, what college? or it's, it's a high school. What's a high it's school? It's a Junior ROTC. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm sure he... There's a person with stories, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, for me... It was serendipitous, I guess, because even though I didn't get a chance to go into the big play field, um, even though after 10 years of training yeah. and getting it wrapped up in, in, yeah. in uh, small operations, you know, you want to get 
I was so irritated because I thought ten years and now they start to play. They start to party without me. You know? <laughs> but that's just the way the ball drops. And yeah. but I would have never been able to get the job I, in the career that I ended up getting at Lockheed. At Lockheed Martin and the F twenty two program. Yeah, I, I left and uh, it just worked out that uh, a once classified, highly classified program uh, called the Advanced Tactical Fighter Program. Was now revealed the winner of that contest was Lockheed Aeronautical Systems Company, yeah, who was headquarters in Marietta, Georgia. Of course, very close to where <laughs> I grew up. Yeah. I would have never thought that that possibility could yeah. happen because they were number one. They were making transport airplanes, not yeah. fighters, but they had the hangar space because there was a drawdown and. The C-5 well, program and yeah. 141 programs no longer were there, and they had all yeah. the space. Yeah, and a so lot Lo- of space. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of space. And so Lockheed won that contract and moved the entire program from Fort Worth. Fort, well, from Burbank to uh, mm. to go into the what they call the Engineering Manufacturing Development Program, yeah. which is really developing the prototype yeah. into a production-ready, yeah. operational yeah. aircraft weapon system. Yeah. But that that was going to be a ten year program. Yeah. From 1990 to 2000, it was supposed yeah. to go become operable as a frontline fighter to replace the F-15s in the year 2000. It was a 20 billion dollar uh, development program. Yeah. Big program. Well, they went from needing having all the engineers they needed to we need 2,200 engineers. We need them yesterday. <laughs> and so I got snapped up. And that's a story in itself. Going into Lockheed Martin, and because of my background, yeah. I uh, picked up a, a position called requirements manager for the air vehicle development program, which is the program that ties it all together into one weapon system. Yeah. As you know, that program was won by a team mm-hmm. head by, as prime contractor, Lockheed Aeronautical Systems Company, but the two preliminary subcontractors that were also involved in yeah. that team was General Dynamics Aerospace in Fort Worth, Texas, yep. Boeing Aerospace, Boeing Military Aerospace mm-hmm. out of Seattle, Washington. So that was a team that beat out the McDonnell Douglas and the Northrop Grumman team, which themselves had a very good uh, entry as well. Oh, yeah. yeah um, the YF-23. The YF-23. They ended up... Before you go on, 6 o'clock. You want to stop here and go get something to eat? That worked for me. And off to dinner, Mike and I went. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, brought to you by Wall Pilot, aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. Mike's two Phantoms are available in six foot, four foot, and eight foot lengths if you go to wallpilot.com. On the next episode of Lessons from the Cockpit, Mike is going to go into some of the engineering that went into building the F-22 and why that is such a great airplane, probably the best fighter plane now flying anywhere in the world. But he's also going to compare and contrast why the F-22 program did so well and why the F-35 program is struggling is over budget and over schedule. So look forward to Mike talking next week on Lessons from the Cockpit. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your family or loved ones, particularly if they enjoy stories from the Cold War and aeronautical engineering. We look forward to having you join us next week on Lessons from the Cockpit. Have a great week, folks.